Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bay Rossley. We are not going to give up on the fight to decarbonize our economy. We should have free tuition at public colleges and universities. Healthcare is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human rights. Those are some of the policy proposals coming from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the United States. Not surprisingly, they're being met with this question. Who pays for it? Does anybody care about the budget anymore? (laughs) But one group of economists says, relax, the government can pay for whatever it wants. Increase the deficit and everything will be fine. An unconventional economic theory is gaining some traction thanks to the policy teams of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. It's called Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. Now, stay with me for this one. MMT suggests that governments don't have to worry about debt because they print their own money. If we need to spend more money on government programs, we print more. But too much money in the economy could result in inflation. MMT suggests that we use taxes as a relief valve, pull money out of the economy, before it overheats from having too much uh, money in there. These adherents of so-called modern monetary theory, or MMT, take as their core premise that a country that borrows in its own currency can't run out of money. It can spend and expand the deficit while avoiding inflation. This idea of modern, mo- so-called modern monetary theory that the government can just print the money it needs to finance itself and Therefore, it never needs to worry about paying its bills. I don't think that's a realistic calculus. And the, the idea that South deficits America don't matter for countries that can borrow in their own currency, I think, is just wrong. Uh, I think for today's episode, we're in Stony Brook, Long Island, to speak with the leading proponent of MMT. Come on in. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Good. Hi, Sierra. Nice to meet you. Stephanie Kelton is a professor of economics at Stony Brook University who served as an economic advisor to Bernie Sanders during his 2016 presidential bid. Stephanie, you are one of the most high-profile proponents of MMT, but I read that that wasn't always the case. What changed your mind about modern monetary theory? Well, so when I first came to the the kind of core ideas, there was it wasn't called modern monetary theory yet. There was a guy named Warren Mosler who had written a little book that he called Soft Currency Economics, and he called it Soft Currency Economics so that it would be distinguished from hard currencies, right? Gold standard. So Warren was writing about how modern fiat currencies work. And I started hearing things like, you know, the government um, spends its currency into existence and doesn't rely on taxes in order to fund itself. And I went, wait, what? I'd been a graduate student at Cambridge University. I'd never had a professor say such a thing before. We were trained uh, to understand government is basically a a big household subject to similar, you know, uh, budgetary constraints. And so I, I started to hear some of these things. And my initial impulse was, well, that's not right. You know, that's got to be wrong. It's, it sounded crazy to me. So Randy actually is the one who challenged me. Who's Randy? Randy Ray, who is uh, at the Levy Economics Institute and Bard College. And I had read some of Warren's uh, work and I said, but it can't be right. And Randy's response was, if you think it's wrong, you should write it up. 
right? You should lay out the argument and show where he's gone wrong. So I spent months reading treasury manuals, Fed manuals, talking with public officials at treasury and Fed, trying to understand how it all works operationally. And at the end of the day, I had this long, complicated narrative that took me to exactly the same place that Warren had arrived. Could you talk a little bit about what it is you found? Because you started out, you talked about how, just like in households, we spend only kind of what our what our budget is and within within our means. And modern monetary theory really is into the belief that governments don't have the same constraints. Well, the main difference, and I think the way that um, the way that we say it and the way that is most helpful for people to appreciate the main difference is to say the federal government issues the currency and the rest of us use the currency. So that distinction between being a currency issuer and a currency user makes it pretty straightforward that you've got a line in the sand. Uncle Sam's on one side of that line and everybody else is on the other side. So you and I as you know, individual families or households, we're currency users, but so are private businesses and so is the state of Kansas or Detroit or Puerto Rico. Um, The big distinction is that between the user and the issuer of the currency. So another way to look at this is rather than governments collecting taxes in order to spend on things like education or public hospitals, they spend first and then they manage the money supply through taxation? Well, they manage the effects of their spending through taxation. Yeah, so I, I've i started using in public talks just to help audiences kind of have a, uh, a simple mnemonic to help them kind of distinguish the way we think from the way that I think we ought to think about government finance. And the mnemonic I use is the TABS model versus the STAB model. So TABS, T-A-B-S, The TAB is taxes and borrowing. And if it's TABS, the taxes and borrowing come first, TAB, followed by S, TABS. So the idea that the government goes out and collects money by raising revenue through taxes, by borrowing any shortfall, and then once it has the money in hand, it can then spend, right? That the government is revenue constrained, just like a household, it's got to find the money, and then it's in a position to spend. I'm arguing, MMT says, we've got it backwards. We should flip that around, put the S in front of the tabs. So before anyone can have the US dollar and be in a position to use it to pay taxes or to use it to buy treasuries, the government has to first spend those dollars into existence. They had to come from somewhere before anyone could have them. So the spending had to come first, then the dollars are out there and available for people to either pay taxes or buy government securities. Is there ever a scenario under MMT where the government does raise taxes? Oh my goodness, yes. Oh heavens, yes. You, MMT is not a permission slip to spend willy-nilly. MMT does not say the government is the issuer of the currency, therefore, yeehaw, issue away, right? Just throw it out the windows, like drop it from helicopters. That is not MMT. MMT is about recognizing and respecting the real limits in our economy. And that's not what people normally talk about, right? So what we're saying is we are, um, we are hewing to the wrong constraints, right? We have this idea that there's a revenue constraint, a budget constraint. And we get very timid when we convince ourselves that the budget constraint is binding so we can't do more. MMT says, no, 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 no. It's not this arbitrary 
budget constraint that binds us. It's our real resource constraint. So what does that mean? It means that as long as there are resources in the economy available to be put to work, whether it's labor, unemployed labor, whether it's idle machinery, spare capacity in our factories, raw materials, if that stuff is available to us, then we can hire it, put it to work, and use it to serve the public good. That doesn't mean we don't have all the resources in the world. We don't have unlimited resources. So if we want to build hospitals and high-speed rail and make public colleges and universities tuition-free and have more teachers and more doctors to care, we're going to do Medicare for all, we're going to do... You need a lot of real resource capacity to make good on that, right? So you have to take stock. You need to go, do I have the people? Can I train people in college to become nurses? Can I get the physician's assistants and the doctor? Do I have the hospital beds? Do I have the band-aids? Do I have the MRI machine? Like, I'm going to provide dental care, vision. I'm going to need optometrists. I'm going to need dentists. How do I make sure that I can stock my economy full of the real resources I need to deliver on all these things? And to the extent that those resources aren't available, you can't have those things. You can compete with the private sector for resources that they have if you need more people, but that can be inflationary. So you're asking, is there ever a case in MMT to raise taxes? The answer is absolutely yes. As resource constraints begin to bind, then spending additional money into the economy carries inflation risk, and you have to offset that, right? Otherwise, you're going to create problems. Who offsets that? Taxes are under the purview of Congress, so it would be a congressional decision. Look, the way we do it right now, uh, let me, I'll use an example, because you have uh, a situation where, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer went to the White House. They said to the president, we want to come talk to you about infrastructure. And he said, okay, right, I want to talk about infrastructure too. So everybody got together. Trump said $2 trillion. Schumer and Pelosi said $2 trillion. Good number. Everybody agreed. $2 trillion. We want to do it. Where did the problem come in? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? So we begin every conversation with the premise, where will the money come from? Right? The idea that every new dollar that we want to spend into the economy must be offset by removing a dollar from somewhere from some other place. You either have to raise taxes or you have to carve money out of some other part of the budget. Paygo, the idea that it all has to be paid for, right? Fully offset. I think that's a terrible mistake. All the talks broke down immediately. We're not going to get infrastructure again. I come in and, and MMT comes in and says, wait a minute, what if we started the discussion differently? Instead of starting with the premise that we need to pull a dollar out of the economy for every dollar we would like to spend in, what if we started with the premise, I wonder what would happen if we just spent $2 trillion over, let's say, four years, $500 billion a year, would that create problems in the economy? Ask that question first. Run the macro analysis. Try to decide if that's too much. Will it be inflationary? If it won't be inflationary, where is the case for the tax increase? We hit a number this last uh, month that really got a lot of people's attention, $22 trillion in national debt. Uh, and we're adding to it. Your forecast for the budget deficit is we're going to hit a trillion dollars a year soon? That's right. And by about 2022, we're going to hit that 
to the degree that's a magic number, we're going to hit that number, and it'll, it'll stay above a trillion dollars under current law. Now, let me ask what that means. A couple of years ago, the Tea Party said it means the ruination of America. Uh, Jay Powell was very strong this week in saying our fiscal house has to be put in order. But we don't see market interest rates move. So does it really matter that we have such large deficits? Well, I do think it matters. I do think it has an impact. So let's get into the details of how this modern monetary theory is implemented and what it actually looks like. And the concept that deficits are bad for an economy is something that we've been told for a long time. Can you talk about why that is not true under MMT? Well, they might be bad for an economy. And so I think that's a really important point that we put in the record uh, is to say MMT does not say all deficits are good deficits. Any size deficit is a great size deficit. So we're very careful here, okay? Every deficit is good for someone. I will say it that way. You know, a lot of people just don't think of it the way we do in MMT, which is to say, if the government spends $100 into the economy, but it only taxes 90 of those dollars back out, we label that government deficit. It gets recorded, it gets reported by CBO, put in the headlines, right? And the bigger the deficit, the scarier it appears to the public. But what we're not paying enough attention to is what's happening on the other side of the government's balance sheet. And that's where Wynne Godley, a British economist, and his approach come in. And that's why MMT in incorporated Godley's insights and said, hang on a second, because if the government spends $100 into the economy, but it only taxes 90 back out, somebody's getting 10, right? It's, the government deficit is nothing more than a financial contribution. It's a, it's a dollar deposit being made in some other part of the economy. So for that reason, I'm saying every deficit is good for someone. Why? Because someone's getting financial assets as a byproduct of the government's deficit. We can ask questions about whether the deficit is excessive and evidence of a deficit that's gotten too big would be inflation. Right? So there are limits. We can ask whether those deficits are being run um, to achieve things that are in the public interest, whether the spending itself is efficient or inefficient, whether the deficit is the result of tax cuts that have gone overwhelmingly to the people least in need of help. So widening income and wealth inequality could be a byproduct of expanding deficits. So it's not that all deficits are good deficits. But it is the case that all deficits are good for someone. Is that assumption, though, that the person holding that surplus that you talked about are Americans and within the American economy? Because I know that other foreign countries hold a lot of Ameri U.S. dollar debt as well. So say like a country like China holding U.S. debt. How does that play out? So you're absolutely right. So the, the, the first pass in the godly model is to divide the economy into two big pieces. One piece is Uncle Sam, let's call that government, and the other piece is everyone who's not Uncle Sam. And we godly just call that the non-government sector. That makes it easy. So if the, if the government runs a deficit, the non-government sector holds the surplus, and it's an equal and opposite Surplus. In other words, for if their deficit is minus 10, then the non-government surplus is a plus 10, right? But you're correct. Part of the non-government 
um, bucket includes China and Japan and uh, other trading partners. And so it's not just going to U.S. firms and U.S. families. It, those dollars can find their way onto the balance sheets of others. So let's talk about, you mentioned uh, China holding lots of U.S. Treasury. So how does China end up with a trillion dollars in U.S. government securities? Okay, They had about twice that not so long ago, and now they're down to about half. And Japan holds roughly uh, a trillion as well. So where do they get these U.S. treasuries? And the answer is basically that China and Japan produce and sell more stuff to us than we produce and sell to them. In other words, we have trade deficits with these countries and they have trade surpluses. And as a result of producing more stuff for us than we produce for them, they end up getting paid in U.S. dollars. So think of that as a checking account in the name of China that exists at the Federal Reserve, okay? Now, China can decide to hold on to those dollars, leave them in their checking account, and just continue churning out goods and services that come into our borders and are available to U.S. citizens and companies to buy. They could spend some of those dollars buying things that we produce. Um, they could buy other assets. They could uh, swap those dollars out for U.S. treasuries. In other words, they say, I don't want to hold these dollars in my checking account. I would prefer that they be in my savings account. So U.S. treasuries are really nothing more than a securities account at the Fed with the with the country's name attached. So we, China has a trillion dollars in U.S. treasuries. It's like a savings account at, at the Fed. I'd love to stay on Japan, which it's an example that you've referred to in the past. And you've noted that Japan can carry a government debt in excess of 200% of GDP because it borrows in yen. But given the Japanese economy's chronic struggle with anemic growth and deflationary fears, will there ever come a point when the government's domestic creditors lose confidence? I don't think so, and I don't think it would matter if creditors lost confidence. And I think that one of the things the central bank has demonstrated, look, they've got almost half of the outstanding government bonds on their balance sheet already. In other words, the central bank has bought almost half of the outstanding JGBs, the Japanese government bonds. There's nothing to prevent them from buying it all. They could do it tomorrow if they wanted to. Really. So the idea that if somehow, you know, outside forces, the market uh, was no, no longer interested in holding JGBs, that that would somehow cause the Japanese government finances to grind to a halt, that they would be shut out of the yen, they would be unable. That's all silly nonsense stuff. That can't happen. In fact, the Japanese government doesn't even have to issue bonds. They can just spend and let the reserves sit in the system. They're there's no reason, there's no economic reason um, to continue to offer Japanese government bonds. And that's what makes people nervous, right? It's the size of the debt. So they see 200 plus percent debt to GDP. They see more than a quadrillion, you know, lots of zeros. And it starts to make people very nervous. Um, I don't think Japan has anything to be nervous about in terms of the size of the national debt, as we've talked about. It's all denominated in local currency. There's never going to be a point at which um, bondholders are due payments in yen, and the Japanese government is incapable of making good on those payments. But is there ever a limit on debt? 
Well, the, not on debt per se, because debt is like the footprint, right? It's a historical record of the legacy deficits. So it, you look backwards over your shoulder to see where the accumulated debt came from. So if you take the gross debt in the U.S., it's basically $22 trillion, right? You say, where did all those treasuries come from? Well, you look behind you, right? And you say, oh, right, it came from all of the cumulative deficits that have been run in the history of the country, right? That's where it came from. So if all of those historic deficits didn't give rise to some problem, then the record which is what the debt is, it's just a historical record of all the dollars that the government has spent into the economy, not taxed back. Those dollars are currently sitting in the form of U.S. Treasuries. They're part of people's saving, their wealth. They're part of their wealth. So if the debt had been too big, then the evidence would have manifested in the form of inflation at some previous point. In contrast to Japan, though, the Eurozone countries are obliged to cap their debt at 60% of GDP. What happens if the U.S. embraces MMT and places like Europe don't because they don't have an independent monetary policy, as you pointed out? How does MMT work in a global economy with very different monetary policy approaches? Well, that's kind of the point. And, you know, we, Wynne Godley, uh, to his great credit, was one of the earliest and most vocal uh, economists when it came to warning about the Maastricht Treaty and the design flaw, right? They had this idea that they were going to introduce this currency in a particular way, divorcing monetary and fiscal powers. And Wynne said, as early as 1992, this is madness. We understood then that this was going to place constraints on these countries that uh, were going to lead to problems. Okay, so now you're saying, well, what if, um, what if the U.S. suddenly, you know, policymakers start to soften or embrace MMT and they realize they have more policy space and they run their fiscal policy more ambitiously to take full advantage of the monetary system they have? But what about Europe? And the answer is, yeah, what about, what about Europe? So what we've done, people like Warren Mosler and Randy Ray and I have written on the Eurozone, what can they do given that these individual countries don't have their own currency? They can't, Greece can't call on its own central bank. Italy can't go to the, the central bank. I mean, you know, so what can they do? Well, you got to rely on the currency issuer. Who's the issuer of the euro? the European Central Bank. They are the issuer, right? And so Warren used to propose, and I think he probably still does, but for years and years ago, he said, look, basically what needs to happen is the ECB needs to recognize that countries are revenue constrained and it needs to make uh, an annual dispensation. Think of it like a parent giving an allowance to their kid because the kid can't make the money, right? I, I need the money to spend. Okay, so here's your allowance each month. Warren's suggestion was that the ECB do this on a per capita basis, and that way Germany gets the most. So it will never be perceived as a as a bailout, as a handout, you know, reward for bad behavior. It's just a recognition that, look, you guys are going to need some additional capacity to run fiscal policy, 
And because we recognize that, we're going to make an annual payment. Okay, you could provide some, you don't want a lot of strings attached, but you could provide some general guidelines that the cushion is there um, to allow countries to achieve full employment, that that's the goal, is that we want to see these funds used to promote policies aimed at maintaining a full employment economy domestically. What will you do if confirmed to ensure that the Fed maintains its independence from outside political influence, especially influence from the White House? Senator, I'm strongly committed to an independent Federal Reserve, uh, and uh, I just would plan, if confirmed, to uh, to follow in the footsteps of uh, distinguished prior chairs and of our long tradition, really, to assure that we do conduct monetary policy and financial regulatory policy, by the way, uh, with, with, without a view to political outcomes, but with a, with a view solely to the right answers. Traditionally in the United States, part of the Federal Reserve's mandate has been to maintain full employment. MMT suggests that full employment should be managed through fiscal means by creating a jobs guarantee. My question is, doesn't that sacrifice productivity and wage growth? What we've clearly done, what Congress did, is to hand the steering wheel to the Federal Reserve and with the dual mandate to say, all right, guys, this this is your job. You guys figure out how to deliver a broadly balanced economy, whereby they said, just figure out how to get you know maximum employment, maximum sustainable employment, and price stability. You, know, you do it. And it absolves Congress of responsibility to conduct policy aimed at broadly achieving full employment because it's like that's not them that's their job right you could just point to the fed and go uh-uh, i i don't have to take these votes but of course the fed doesn't and can't give us true full employment in the sense that there's no involuntary unemployment the best that they can do is use under normal circumstances, right? They have a conventional toolkit. And the conventional toolkit is that the Fed adjusts the short-term interest rate. So they make tiny adjustments to one price in the entire U.S. economy, right? The overnight interest rate, that's their policy uh, tool. They change this one price, 25 basis points here, 25 basis points there. It's a half a percentage point, right? The idea that these little tiny movements in a single price in a $20 trillion economy are powerful enough to allow this institution, the Federal Reserve, to steer this huge economic ship is rather crazy to me, okay? But that's what we've done. We we assume the Fed can carry out monetary policy with this one price and deliver a broadly balanced, healthy economy. MMT says, okay, that's a little crazy. And we have leaned way too heavily on central banks, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Look at what the Bank of Japan has been trying to do for two decades. Look at what the ECB has tried to do. You got countries running negative interest rate policy, doing three and four and you know rounds of quantitative easing. Buying corporate bonds, buying stocks. I mean, it's just like, you know, we've gone into this unconventional realm where central banks are essentially trying anything they can because we've put all of the burden on central banks to to grow healthy economies. And they can't do it alone. And for the first time in my professional career, this year really, um, you're starting to hear central bankers say, we can't do this. 
we can't do this. And you're starting to hear economists say, we shouldn't ask them to do this. For the first time, okay, and MMT has been saying from the beginning that we have the right goals, full employment and price stability, but we've given the mandate to the wrong institution. It shouldn't be central banks. Central banks should be worried not about price stability, but financial stability. That should really be where we put pressure on central banks to supervise, regulate the financial system. And yes, fiscal policy should be in the driver's seat when it comes to achieving a broadly balanced economy. So MMT is essentially erasing the distinction between monetary and fiscal policy. Well, it depends how you think about MMT, I guess. There are some people who um, would say MMT is saying we should pull the fiscal policy lever more strongly, but you could still argue, and people do, that the central bank will fight against that. So if Congress is trying to pass tax cuts and increase spending to boost the economy, but the Fed is fighting the stimulus by raising interest rates, um, you could tell that story in a within the MMT framing. MMT has argued that basically it would be better to have the central bank just set the interest rate at a at a rate very close to zero and leave it there and stop with this, you know, um, constantly having FOMC meetings to decide whether to, you know, adjust the interest rate a tiny bit in this or that direction, thinking that this has powerful spillover effects into the real economy that we should really just say, look, the interest rate channel, we probably don't understand it very well. We may even have it backwards. It doesn't seem to work the way that theory tells us. Let's just anchor it at a low rate, leave it there, and then let the central bank focus on macroprudential regulation and financial stability and so forth. So they don't have to be in tension, in other words. The central bank can play a, a supportive role where their job is to clear all of the payments that have been authorized by Congress right, as they do now, but to focus their efforts on maintaining a healthy financial system. The central bank's role, though, with interest rates is really to keep inflation in check. How are we preventing inflation from happening? Well, I think the world is preventing inflation from happening. Uh, Our institutions, the lack of um, strong unions, the fact that we're we're just not generating wage growth. If central banks were that good at controlling and managing inflation, then surely, surely, after more than two decades, the Bank of Japan would have delivered 2% inflation. If they had the ability to do it, they would do it, okay? The Fed has been trying, we're at a decade now since the financial crisis and the start of the Great Recession. We still do not have, durably, 2% inflation in the U.S. It isn't because they aren't trying. It is because they do not have the tools to deliver and manage the inflation rate. I mean, they just don't. If they could do it, they would have done it by now. But then what's the MMT model for inflation? Well, it's... It's not a simple model. It, what we do is recognize that the quantity theory of money isn't correct, that the idea that the inflation rate is simply whatever the rate of growth of the money supply is, that these two are you know, intimately bound up, that can't be right. Um, so where, where does inflation come from? Look, we construct these indices, CPI, core PCE, PPI. We had all these indices. They're man-made. 
We choose what goes in the basket. We choose how to weight the various items in the basket. So you look at something like the CPI measure that a lot of people... CPI, can you just tell us what that is? The consumer price index. So it's that basket of goods that is supposed to be representative of the average spending behavior, right, of the average American. So you got this index, and it's got transportation and entertainment and food and energy and healthcare and education. It's got all these things in it. And depending on how big a piece of the average consumer's budget each of those is, it has more or less weight. You know, entertainment is small compared to healthcare, which is big. The point is, you could get an increase in headline inflation. But if you look under the hood and you say, well, what's driving that? Well, maybe it's just all due to housing. Maybe it's all down, virtually all down to healthcare costs. Maybe it's a, so to think about inflation, you think what is causing the price increases? Markets, market power, um, the, the ability of workers to negotiate. It's a struggle over income shares. But then who would do it? I guess my question is, who would look out for those indicators if it's not the central bank looking out for it? What what body looks out for yeah. potential inflation? Yeah. So, so what we do today is we use unemployment to fight inflation. The Fed tries to pick the right amount of unemployment, right? And they give it a fancy name called the NIRU the non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment. You got to love these acronyms. Oh man, or the un, or or just the natural rate, right? Cuz there's something natural about having millions of people who want to work locked out of the uh, possibility of of finding employment. So we just call it natural rate. So it's up to the central bank to say how much unemployment do you think is the right amount of unemployment? When should we try to stop uh, people from finding more jobs, right? So we use unemployment to fight inflation. And MMT says, surely there must be a better way, right? There must be a better way. And our solution has been um, to use employment to fight inflation. And so the idea of the federal job guarantee is that you can achieve full employment, true full employment, not fake full employment, but really have a, a job available to anyone who wants to work at a living wage. There is essentially a public option in the job market, federally funded, locally administered. Now you've achieved full employment, and you say, how is this better at fighting inflation than the current model, right, which holds hostage millions of people in the reserve army of the unemployed, as Marx put it, right? And the answer, at least in part, is that um, the job guarantee is an, a powerful cushion, an automatic stabilizer, so that when the economy goes into a downturn when you experience a recession, instead of throwing millions of people out of work and having many of them become long-term unemployed where their skills atrophy, um, they lose their you know, work habits, and then as the economy begins to recover, employers don't want to hire the people who are the long-term unemployed. They're the last people they want. So what do they do? They try to hire around them. They would rather compete for a worker who's already got a job, maybe at a competitor, bid up wages, than to take that unemployed worker, long-term unemployed worker, for a very small premium. We can get that worker cheap. So there's a bigger inflation bias in the way we currently do things as compared to what we would achieve if we had a job guarantee because everyone's employed, 
right? The only thing you have to do to get a worker out of the, the public service employment, the job guarantee work, is to offer a very small premium over what they're currently getting, right? What sort of jobs are these? Um, do they compete with the private sector? You don't want to compete um, with the private sector for delivering the same kind of thing. You're not going to put people to work making hamburgers and start competing with, you know, McDonald's. I know that new chicken sandwich is like all the rage, but the goal would not be to hire a bunch of people and try to create a a better tasting chicken sandwich. Um, What you want to do, what we've described is that these jobs should be oriented broadly around building a care economy. So that means caring for people, caring for the planet, and caring for communities. But there are a lot of care jobs in the private sector, and I I can already hear, you know, the pushback from the right saying the private sector within market conditions and there's competitiveness, they're going to provide the care in a much better, more efficient way than a government would. Well, then they shouldn't worry about the competition, right? If they think that the government can't uh, do anything well and it's inefficient and it will do a very bad job, then they will outcompete in in, in that space. Look, the care work right now, this is one of the fastest growing occupations is um, elder care. And one of the worst paying, it's atrocious. It's like $24,000 a year to do that kind of work. For long hours. For long hours. So let's set a floor. Let's set a, a, a standard where we say, look, if you're doing this incredibly important work, there is always an option where you can come and offer those kinds of services and care at uh, 15 bucks an hour with benefits. You're going to quickly transform those jobs that already exist into better paying jobs. Stephanie, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? Young people, my kids, and the young people that I see. I see a generation of people coming up who are optimistic, who um, are politically engaged, who seem not willing to accept no for an answer. They want, um, they want to think big, and they're imagining the world as it could be, not as, um, as it could be left to them. They want more, and I, I, that gives me hope. Stephanie, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That was Stephanie Kelton, an economist and professor at Stony Brook University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna.